What is up, guys? Welcome to The Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder. What I'm going to be doing with this show is actually showing you guys what exactly you need to look for prior to buying, building, selling, or even renting a home. I'm going to bring in some of the top people in the industry so we can dive deeper into discussion about these topics and really give you guys the tools you need to learn and know prior to making one of the biggest purchases of your lifetime. So with that being said, guys, welcome to The Real Build. So welcome to The Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder. And today I have a guest coming from Cincinnati, Ohio. He is the owner of the Construction Leading Edge where he helps construction business owners boost revenue, put financial worries behind them, and turn their company into a well-oiled machine. He, is also, he also has a website and a top-rated podcast dedicated to helping construction leaders grow their leadership skills and grow their income. Todd DeWalt, welcome to The Real Bill. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. I'm excited to have you on because like we talked about earlier, it's a different angle with my audience. Obviously, you know, my stuff and content's directed towards the customer, but this one's going to help out the builder or the person that's in construction because I got a lot of listeners that are in the construction business. So definitely excited to have you on. It's probably going to, I'm probably going to have to pull out a notepad myself because I'll probably learn quite a few things as well. So um, thank you again. So the way I like to get started um, is, you know, kind of asking about your background. So let's talk about who is Todd DeWalt. Who is Todd DeWalt? Um, so I'm a 45-year-old guy. I live in northern Kentucky, live, live out in the country. I grew up on a farm here in this area, married my high school sweetheart. Um, pretty sure it might have been an arranged marriage from way back, but I haven't been able to prove that. I have four kids and um, yeah, I'm all about helping, trying to help people avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made back in, in, uh, in my business and my career. So that's, that's what I'm up to now. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit more because me doing my research on you, you started your own construction business, um, you know, and how did you get in the construction business and, and what was your reason? How did you get started in it? Yeah, well, I really got into construction when I was in college. I was at the University of Kentucky. I was in the agricultural engineering program for some reason. I'm not sure why I was in there. I think my brother talked me into that. And I ended up um, getting a co-op position signed up for the co-op program and was offered a co-op position with a heavy construction company out of, uh, well, they were located not far from me in Dayton, Ohio. So um, I thought, yeah, local construction company sounds great. The job's a job. I need something for the resume. I ended up going to Orlando, Florida and working on a water treatment plant there for a semester and just absolutely loved it. Loved every part of it. I had never um, even though I, I grew up on a farm, so I had worked from the time I was a little kid, but I'd never really worked in construction. I just loved it, loved the whole process, uh, fell in love with it. So while I was there, I changed my major to the closest thing I could that would get me into construction, which was civil engineering, came back, hammered out the last three semesters, 
and then ended up working for a general contractor here in Cincinnati and managed, managed well, started off as a project engineer doing line and grade, running crews, building libraries and, and airport expansions and hospitals and office buildings and that kind of stuff. Ended up managing projects. And then I decided, you know what, Todd, you're making this company a lot of money. You're pretty good at building stuff. You should start your own business. And so that's what I did. And I thought because I could build stuff, which I could, I'd built big complicated projects, all of which had been successful. So I thought since I could build stuff, then I could own a construction business. And um, had a couple of realizations pretty quickly. One was uh, building projects and building a business are very, very different, two mm. very different skill sets. I was poorly equipped for the business side of it. And I also had grown the business to a point where I wasn't doing stuff I liked anymore. And got to a point where I, I just, I just hated it and made a lot of mistakes along the way. But in a nutshell, that's, that's how I got into construction. And then that's how I ended up having my own business. So that's, that's the thing too. It's kind of, there's a lot of similar stories to yours that a lot of people, you know, maybe in some kind of construction industry or some kind of construction field, and then they decide to transition and become a builder, become, you know, start their own company. And, you know, they say, Hey, why not? Why I, I can do it. You know, if they're doing it, I can do it, but there's so much more into it. Like you just said, and you learn personally hands on that a lot of people don't know. And I preach about it too. I mean, especially when times are busy, like, you know, you know, everybody, I, like, I've said this before on my show that everybody with a pickup truck becomes Joe Builder, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's, that's why I, I'm glad I got you on here because you learn from personal experience what exactly, you know, it does take. And you took that experience of, you know, closing your doors in 2005 and then turned it into another business to where you can help people too, which is awesome too. So, um, you know, so that kind of brings me into my next question. So you were in the construction, you were in construction for four years, and then you shut down in 2005. So what exactly happened that, you know, let's go deeper into that. Yeah, there were several root causes. Um, one, I, I took on a business partner who ended up um, not really bringing anything to the table, and then also stealing money from the business. So that was a big problem. Yeah. And I had no real strategy to grow the business. Um, I had shiny object syndrome. So I found myself, I had grown the business to a point where I had people in different cities and I was doing work to try to just grow for growth's sake. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, it just didn't work. I didn't have a strategy. I wasn't doing what I really enjoyed, kind of got lost along the way. I wasn't good at dealing with the stuff that needed to be dealt with. So if there was an uncomfortable situation, then I would just avoid it. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was that stuff didn't go away. And in fact, it, I learned that the tough situations in those tough situations, I don't get to decide if I'm going to have to deal with it. 
because I'm going to have to deal with it. But what I get to decide is, do I get to deal with it when it's really small and it's pretty easy to solve? Or am I going to procrastinate and avoid and then have to deal with it when it's like this big hairy monster that's walking around, trashing everything, causing all kinds of chaos. So that was a lot of what I learned was, was really, I was the biggest problem because there was, there was work out there. There, there were opportunities. Um, but I was my, I was my biggest problem. I, I didn't address the, the things that I needed to address. I didn't really have a, a strategy. I, I didn't, yeah, I, I was my, my own biggest problem and, um, didn't do the basic blocking and tackling of business. I, I had, as I mentioned, shiny object syndrome, mm-hmm. get some idea. I was really looking for the big home run. That's what I was looking for. And I realized that that's, that's a thinking trap that a lot of people get into is looking for like the one big deal. That's just going to set me for life. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe they're out there and, and there's a lot of, a lot of news stories about the people who make the, the billion dollar hit with their company or whatever, but uh, uh, that, that's kind of a unicorn. So what happened, I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't, I wasn't prepared to run a business, didn't have a strategy. I just made a, I just made a lot of mistakes and um, yeah, had to shut it down. And that's the thing too, you going through that failure and all those mistakes that you went through has really kind of, you know, obviously it's a learning experience. I mean, we all have them. We all have to go through failures in life to learn from our, you know, and learn from the mistakes that you were just talking about too, you know, and stuff like that. And it, that's the thing with business, especially this business. And that's why once again, I'm glad you're on is there is so many different pieces to it. It's not just building a house. I mean, there's a lot that goes into building a house, a ton, you know, but then you have the inside stuff, you have dealing with the customers, you have the money, you have to keep track of your finance, you know, there's so many pieces that people overlook, because they just think they're gonna make serious money you know i could build a house i could flip it sell it for the you know it's just it's in anything even so it's that's that's the whole thing with it too yeah and going into my next thing with you too so after you shut your doors you know in 2005 you took over operations of another construction company and you grew that you blew that business up i mean you grew up big time so talk about how you did this. Uh, how did you figure all, all this out after closing your own business? Let's go. Into yeah. That. Well, let me, let me talk about closing the business. Like I, I talk about it now, like it wasn't that big of a deal, but mm-hmm. it was, I, I wouldn't wish though. And it wasn't just like, Oh, I just shut the business down and move on to the next thing. It, th- those were the worst probably three years of my life, 2004, five, and six. I, I created problems at the scale that I, I couldn't even imagine. I had no concept of how big of a hole I could have gotten myself into. Mm-hmm. And it put an incredible amount of strain on me, on my wife, on my extended family. It didn't just affect me, it affected my mental health, my physical health obviously took a huge financial hit, but it it was it was bad. 
and it was bad at a level that I couldn't even imagine. I, I just, it was that bad. So I don't want to gloss over that. Um, yeah. But once I, I got out of that situation, I, I set about to get back in the game. I, I went to work for a, a large company doing working as an owner's rep in the commercial world. So I managed big projects for Procter and Gamble and office buildings and office renovations, things like that. <clears throat> but I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to really affect the bottom line. And I'm a, I, I'm a competitive guy. I like results. I like to, to, to perform at a high level. So I did that for a little while. And then um, after about probably maybe five or six years, I, I, I was in a couple of positions where I couldn't affect the bottom line. I had this entrepreneurial itch that just wouldn't go away and I needed to get back in the game. So long story, this really weird, twisty, turny story of things that I that don't even make sense to me. Certainly didn't make any sense back then. They don't make sense to me now, but I ended up in the sewer rehabilitation industry. I didn't even know it existed. I spent most of my career, if not all my career at that point, building stuff above the ground. And this business is all underground. So two big problems for Todd. One, everything's below ground. So I can't drive around and have my kids roll their eyes when I say, hey, look, see that project that I worked on? That, you know, dad built that. Well, they don't, you know, they've seen all of those buildings. And then two, the thing about the sewer industry is it's human waste which mm -hmm. is not as glamorous as, as building. So I ended up in the sewer rehab industry, a guy who owned a business said, Todd, you're my ticket out of here. I want you to come run my company so I can retire. And I ended up going to work for him under those uh, circumstances. Lo and behold, it, it was chaos. Cash flow was terrible. He was terrible. Customers hated us. If it could be bad, it was bad. And he was taking out loans on equipment to make payroll that he didn't tell me this when he hired me away from the pretty good job that I had. So I was stuck there. And frankly, I tried to get out. Mm -hmm. This was in 2011 or 2012. And I couldn't, I couldn't get away. I was trying to get back to my quote, real life. And I couldn't get out every job that I tried to find just stayed out of reach. So finally made the decision, like I'm, I'm going to have to make the best of this. I got to make this work. So I get paid. And so the other families that are being supported by this company get paid. So when I got there, there were about 15 employees. The company was doing maybe $4 million in revenue. As I said, chaos everywhere. It was, it was, it was terrible. And so I, I out of necessity, I had to, first of all, fix the cash flow situation. So I would get paid and everybody else would get paid <clears throat> so we could keep the doors open. And I fixed the cash flow situation and then I fixed some customer relationship issues. And then I had to sort of going after more work because we were really top heavy and we had way too much overhead. So we had to get more work to be able to support that overhead. So I did all of these things out of necessity to keep the doors open. And I started building systems. And 
system after system, attacking areas of chaos with systems, growing people. And at the end of three years, we had grown from 15 employees up to 50 employees. And revenue was up from 4 million to around 11 million. One, one of the, my last months there, we did a million dollars in revenue one month. And profitability was there. Chaos was way down, even though we had tripled the number of employees. And that's, that's when I started my podcast. That was, mm-hmm. I left that company in 2015, started my podcast in the middle of 2014 because I realized, hey, I, I wish there was something, I want to build something that would have helped me back in 2004. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was listening to a lot of podcasts. So I thought, hey, I'll just start a podcast and I'll start talking about this stuff. Maybe it'll help people. Maybe it won't. And that's when it all got started. So going from where you were, I mean, the company, so you, in 2005, closing your doors for the pro, basically, you know, you were dealing with the same issues that of the company that you walked into. Um, how did you learn, you know, and, and how did you learn and implement these systems into this new company to help them? What, what, you know, I know you kind of got forced to learn, but what did you do to, you know, do boost that company? How did you learn to do that? Because transitioning from where you were, you dealt with the same issues, you know? Um, yeah, I, a lot of it was trial and error okay. because most of my experience outside of owning my business had been in project management. So my job was to manage projects. So I didn't. I'd never really dealt with dealing with, I'd never really dealt with business systems at that point, or for that matter, growing people. So I just started doing research. I I picked the most painful problem, which one of the very first things I attacked was timesheets. We had about 15 employees. Payday was an absolute disaster. Everything pretty much shut down at two o'clock on payday and guys were coming to the shop to pick up checks. Most of them were wrong, underpaid, overpaid. And we were just chasing our tail, trying to get paychecks. Right. And I was like, this is dumb. There has to be a better way. So I did some research, found a piece of software called T sheets, got everybody's buy-in, rolled it out. Absolute game changer. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, Hmm, so this is, like the key to making chaos go away is to stop treating the symptoms. Like I could have hired more people just to deal with all the craziness on payday, or I could go solve the root problem Mm. with a piece of software in this case. Like, Oh, so we got to, what I learned was find the root cause and then find a good system that works and then implement that system and then stick with the implementation until it's done. So I, I did that. And then, I went to the next problem and the next problem and the next problem, tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work. And like there were problems that I worked on for a year or a year and a half Mm -hmm. before I finally got things in place. So it was not always easy, but a lot of it was trial and error. Yeah. And you taking the time to learn it too is, I mean, that's where you're, that's why you're where you're at today too. And coaching a lot of a lot of late nights in the office after everybody was gone a lot of research um yeah yeah that's awesome so 
going into now your next that you decided to start another business to help people in the construction industry avoid the struggles that you went through can you explain what you are doing and how you you did this yeah i'd like to tell you that i had this grand plan five years ago that has crystallized into what i'm doing now but honestly when i started the podcast in 2014 that was really the plan mm-hmm and my thought process was, I wish it, I want to build something that would have helped me. Um, if I could help one person avoid all the hell and torment and financial strain and physical and emotional strain that I went through, that's probably something I should spend some time on. And I had this thought in the back of my mind, if I create something valuable enough, then eventually I can wrap a business around it. I don't know what that business is. Um, so that's what I started off with, started the podcast. I started sharing stuff, started bringing people onto the podcast, interviewing them. The audience very slowly grew. I mean, it was crickets for months, mm. maybe even years. And at one point I was like, screw this. This is not working. I've been at this for a year and a half for two years. And I just put it on the shelf and I just forgot about it. Like, I, this is not working. And after about six months, what was funny was after six months of me not touching it, not doing anything, doing something completely different, I checked my podcast downloads and the freaking podcast downloads went up like exponentially during those six months when I wasn't doing anything. So I was like, okay, there must be something here. So I sat down with myself at the beginning of, I think it was 2017, and I had uh, just read the book, Think and Grow Rich, which really changed my, my life, changed the way I think about things. And one of the big takeaways was you can either sit back and wait for things to happen, which is what I've been doing, like looking for this perfect opportunity to come to me, or you can decide what you want, commit to it, and then make it happen. So there I was faced with the reality that I had been the reason. I was the problem over the previous 15 or 17 years. I'm like, crap, it was me. Like I'd been bouncing around from thing to thing looking for this um, ideal opportunity. And the whole time, all I needed to do was make a decision and commit to it and then not have a plan B. Because up until that point, I was really good at having contingency plans and excuses. So I said, I'm going to make this thing work. I don't know how, but I'm going to make it work. And I tried stuff and I tried programs and I dug into my audience to find out what they needed help with. And now I have my construction business accelerator program, which is an online group coaching program. And then I work with construction business owners in my one-on-one coaching program. And then I do some speaking and have a few other things, but it's all focused around helping construction business owners systematize their business, fix their mindset, get out of their own way, and then eliminate chaos in their business. And see, that's the thing too, like your, your key word there was value. I mean, when you transitioned and finally realized that you wanted to do something that was valuable and deliver value, 
um you know that's that's when things changed for you and shifted and plus i mean the power of podcasting is huge i just had a um a guy that we we just went all in on and that'll be a future episode with me or whatever but it was all about podcasting and how powerful it truly is and you've been doing it for a while and how many people you can reach through that platform and help them and you know when you finally committed to it and you know that's huge is the key word too is commitment and delivering that value that's when you know things probably escalated for you too yeah. And that was probably a key transition um, for a long time. I was looking at what was good for me, like what I wanted, yeah. or I would, I would create something that I thought was cool. And then it wouldn't, nobody else thought it was cool. And yeah. I would get frustrated at them for not thinking that my idea was cool. Mm-hmm. Then I realized, well, that's dumb. They don't think it's cool because it's not valuable to them. So mm-hmm. instead of guessing and coming up with stuff that you think is cool, Todd, what if we do this? What if we go ask them what their problems are and then come up with solutions that would be valuable? Like, oh, mm-hmm. that's, that's a brilliant strategy. <laughs> and if I were a smart man, I probably would have figured that out 15 years sooner. But I guess it's uh, better late than never, right? Yeah, I think we all would have too. I mean, I'm the same way as far as mine, you know, me just, I just got started uh, this past year and, and doing what I'm doing because finally I just got to the point where I'm like, all right, I'll start a podcast, but you have to have obviously that mission behind what you're doing. And my whole thing is, you know, teaching people what to look for in construction and in real estate. Cause I'm a, both a broker and a builder. It, Cause I mean, it's such a big, you know, such big business and investment for these people. And a lot of people don't know, you know, they're, they're going online, they're looking, but in the building industry, there's so many things, so many factors. It's not about the number, you know, it's, it's, it's about the quality, the materials, the, you know, the, the long lasting the communication, the, and then the rep, the reputation and so on after the fact. And, it's just having that mission behind what you're doing and finally realizing, you know, to give value to people and it's not about you, you know? Yeah. And that's, I picked this up somewhere along the way is that, um, my, our income, mm-hmm. your income, my income is directly proportional to the value that we create for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So we create value for people by solving problems. Um, so another way to say that is, your income is directly proportional to the size of the problems you can solve or the number of people you can solve problems for. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're the problem you solve is taking a cardboard box off a shelf and putting it in a cart, like at a warehouse, that's a pretty, it's a problem that needs to be solved, but it's a low value problem. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can build a $3 million custom home, that is high quality and give your customer a really good experience where they are in love with you at the end of the project, then that is extremely high value. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's scarce. That's a very scarce skill set. So that's, that was a big mindset shift for me was realize if I want to make more money and have more impact, I need to be valuable. I need to serve people. It's all about my service to people, the value I bring to them and the size or the number of problems I can solve for them. Yeah. And it's, that's spot on. I mean, that's huge right there because it's, it's, 
I say it, it's not about the money to me. It's, it really is about doing the, doing it the right way and helping people. And when you change your mindset to that and delivering a better product to everybody that you possibly can and the experience like you just spoke about, I mean, that's just going to bring in more money too, you know, and, and blow up your business even more. So, and not a lot of people focus on that. I always say they're all focused on the, on the return on the, you know, on, on the product that they put out there and not maintaining the relationships or playing the long term with customers and continuing to build off of that because you, you do a good job for one customer. They're going to, you're probably going to get another one from them eventually down the road, you know, it could be two years, five years, 10 years, but eventually, you know, it's long term. It's playing that long term game. Absolutely. And if you, if you give value, it will come back to you, call it karma, call it sowing and reaping, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've, I've seen it in my life over the past 20 plus years. And I'll tell you, my, my business development strategy right now is I give massive value to everybody I can. Mm. So especially if they can't pay me. So I, I actively look for people that I can help who won't do anything for me. Mm hmm because I'm tipping those awesome. tipping that scale in my favor. And mm. if it, it's, it's the way the universe works and it feels really good to help people. So I am trying to get myself and I'm, I'm getting there, getting myself into a place where I'm focusing more on giving massive value, taking care of other people, focusing on the other person, knowing that my results are going to be taken care of. Like Zig Ziglar, I think said this, if you help people get everything they want in life, then you'll get everything you want. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's a great business development strategy. It's contrary to what a lot of people think. If you think it's a dog eat dog world and you, you only give, if you're going to receive, then that's kind of a scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. But when you realize that it's all about being generous and giving value and every time you give to somebody that can't do anything for you, it's going to come back some other way you get that that uh that momentum rolling in your favor and i'm telling you once once you get that rolling it's a good place to be oh yeah highly agree with everything you just said right there i mean but and the sad part is like we just said is not a lot of people have that mentality you know and and that's that's the sad part about it they should you know it's going to hurt them in the long term because what you're what you're saying long long run i have no doubt with you and what you're doing too you're going to keep going up and up and up and what you're doing in your business you know because you're you're doing the things that a lot of people aren't doing and that's huge that's definitely big um, going to the next topic, I, this is huge with me. I kind of brushed on it. You know, let's talk financials. Obviously, this is a big part of the construction industry. You know, most people don't want to deal with what are some common financial mistakes and how can they all be avoided? So there's this, uh, this cost that I learned, um, learned about. It doesn't show up on a bank statement. You'll never see it on an invoice, but it hammers a lot of people's bottom line. And there are a lot of contractors who are saying, you know, I've got, I've got work in backlog, I've got all this backlog, but I'm not making money. Or um, uh, my cash flow is messed up and I, I don't understand what's going on. 
I price work right. And when I look at my job cost, then I'm making money, but I don't have any money in my account. My cash flow screwed up. And here's what this looks like. It, I actually spoke to a guy this week. He is a, a site work contractor. And he told me that he just happened to mention this project he was on. He showed up to, to grade out part of the project, get it ready for paving. I think it was the parking lot. And they, they couldn't do anything because they had the GC or other trades had stuff all over the, the parking lot. So they couldn't do their work. So they lost like two or three days of production. So all the equipment, the crew sitting there and they couldn't work. Maybe they, maybe they stayed busy. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did some stuff, but they, they weren't able to get any production done. So I asked him, so what's your, what's your cost per day? He was like doing the math. And it's, well, it's like for that, that's a pretty small crew. It's like four grand a day, hmm, $4,000 a day. And then he said, and then, so that's my cost, but then I'm also missing out on the profit that I could be making on the next job that I should be working on instead of being tied up on this project. Then I asked him, so how many days a year do you think you're losing? He was like, and I heard the gears turning. Mm -hmm. I'm probably losing like 20 days a year. And that's a really small crew. So he said, I'm probably losing $150,000 a day just in hard cost from lost time. So all that work's still in backlog. And if you look at the job cost, maybe it doesn't show up, but the, the big cost that's hammering people's bottom line is what I call opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's when you're not turning backlog into revenue at the highest rate possible. So your job as a business owner is to turn days into dollars. Like mm-hmm. You may get more material, more equipment, whatever, but you can't get time back. Once that day is gone, then you're still paying all the overhead, and for that day, because your overhead costs are typically fixed, it's not based on the work that you're doing. So you incurred one day of overhead for every, even if it's a lost day, and then you're missing out on the profit that you could be producing. So most people don't understand this opportunity cost and how bad it's hammering them yeah. because they're, they're losing time, losing days, and they're not turning days into dollars at the rate that they should be and or even hours so what i advise people to do is all right figure out what's your let's look at how much revenue a crew should produce so in this example his cost was four thousand well you don't want to just do work at cost right you want to get some return on investment you want to make some profits so let's say that crew should be doing like eight thousand dollars in revenue a day that means it's a thousand bucks an hour. So every hour of lost production you get hit with, it's a thousand dollars in opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of this abstract economic principle that maybe it shows up in other businesses, but it hammers a lot of contractors, um, and it causes cash flow problems. It causes all sorts of financial difficulties and. It's so does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, because if the job site's not moving, you know, because I mean, especially in building, if you're going off a draw schedule or something like that, too, I mean, if the job's not moving, and there's no workers at a job, you're not going to get paid. So I mean, each day, like you said, I mean, that's in any business, too, uh, because, you know, we we can't buy back time. So time is so important in business that if there's not, you know, productivity happening, then right. you're losing money as a business because you're paying employees and so on. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so for, for home builders, um, they may f- say, well, I don't have a lot of hourly employees, but you have overhead, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you have carry cost. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're paying for lots and sitting on lots, you're paying that interest on the lot. Maybe you're paying mm-hmm. construction loan interest. Um, you have overhead costs. So you have all of this, the, the meter is running basically 24 hours a day. And if you're, if you're subcontractors, if you're not scheduling your subs right, and you're losing a couple of days or a week in between trades, then you're getting hammered with opportunity costs mm-hmm. because your supervisor could be that, you know, that six month build is stretching out to seven months, which means you're getting hit with the extra carry costs, extra overhead, and you're not able to get your superintendent or your foreman out to the next project to generate that, that revenue. And mm-hmm. the thing is all that work's still in your backlog, but you're not, your job is to work through your backlog as quickly as possible. And a lot of people fall in love with their backlog. They get this sense of security out of having backlog. Mm-hmm. But you, what you really want to do is, work through your backlog as quickly as you possibly can with the resources you've got. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Cause you want it, like, I always say too, with like us, with our, you know, everything's almost like on an assembly line. Every house is almost at a different stage too. So we have our subcontractors at each project to keep everything moving down that assembly line. When one, when they're stuck together, you know, and subs are at one and not at another, you know, cause we're limited to the amount of, you know, subcontractors that we have that we want to use as builders, you know, that's, that's putting a delay on that job and who's losing money, you know, you as the builder. So that makes a lot of sense too. As far as, you know, this is big with me, you being a coach, what would you recommend builders do to help customers select the right contractor based on quality and not price? I talked about this before, you know, I, I deal with it all the time. People can't get past the numbers. You know, they look at a builder's number and there's a lot of question marks, but they still go with that. And, and a lot of time it sucks for them, you know, because they are going with a bad builder that's undercutting, you know, somebody that has a good reputation as well and they choose to go with that cheaper price but they and then they have to learn from experience that okay yeah we messed up so what do you back to the question you know how can you help customers select the right contractor based on quality and not price yeah this is a big question and there's a there's a, a belief everybody in construction and for some reason a lot of contra- a lot of homeowners believe that the decision on which contractor is used is connected to the price. Mm-hmm. Big time. That's what people believe. And that's not always the case, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody, what, what customers don't realize is the bid from Carl's building company and Dave's custom homes 
they can get an estimate and have uh, some description or a floor plan, but it's based on all sorts of allowances and assumptions and, and wild ass guesses. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this, like what I tell people is try to, it's, it comes down to educating the customer. Like don't assume that they know anything. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to a guy a few months ago who was a, a disc jockey in Montreal. And I asked him, what's the number one thing you learned from being a DJ for like 30 years? And he said, never underestimate the stupidity of your listener. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Why would you say that? Um, because they, they don't know anything. They don't know anything about how things go on behind the scenes. So never underestimate the ignorance of your client. So get them to realize like, Hey, you don't, one, you don't have to have a price before you decide who you're going to build with because this price could go up and down based on the selections. Mm -hmm. You could have a $20,000 kitchen or an $80,000 kitchen. And we don't know that yet. So let's try to disconnect the decision on who we're going to build with from that price and agree that this we're going to pick the builder who's going to lead us through this process and help mm-hmm. us make the right selections and not hammer us. So some of it's education. And the other thing is to, to start selling based on value from the very first interaction. So what I advise people to do is start asking questions early on, like the first phone call. I've got a list of 25 qualifying questions that I've, give my clients questions like, um, what's going to be the best part about having this, this house done or this project done? What are you most concerned about? Here's a big one. Are you looking for a firm price or just a ballpark budget? Mm-hmm. So you're asking questions to qualify this lead and then start asking questions like, uh, what are you most concerned about? What's, what, could, what could go wrong? And what if you pick the wrong contractor? Are you looking, like one of the questions is, are you looking for a professional builder or um, just a carpenter? Mm -hmm. Custom home builder or spec home builder? They might say, well, what's the difference? And asking lots of questions. And if, if you find out you're dealing with a tire kicker or somebody who is really just all about price, then the answer is don't. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to, if you don't, if you don't want to waste time on tire kickers and price hagglers, then let's figure that out early on and find out if they're getting 12 bids, uh, where's the lead coming from, right? So if it's coming from Home Advisor or House or Angie's List, ask yourself, am I automatically getting into a bidding war based on my lead source? And if so, just maybe think about a different different type of lead source, but um, also educate people on the things that they don't know about. If they're, if they're all about price, like we just want to get this thing done as low as possible. Then you might ask questions like, um, well, are you concerned about mechanics liens? And well, what do you mean? Why would I be concerned about that? Well, here's what could happen. Maybe you've got a case study or an article you can send them about some shady builder in your area who didn't pay their subs and Mm -hmm. their customers ended up having to uh, pay off their house. This happened 
in my area about 15 years ago. Huge problem. There was some corruption between a a builder and a banker, and these people paid off their house. They didn't have a construction loan, so they didn't get a title search. And then they ended up having a lien on their house. They had to pay for it twice. So that's scary to people. And then Mm -hmm. what about, here's, here's, here's some things you should be concerned about. Like this house has some unusual flashing details. And here's what we do. Here's how we make sure this is done right to avoid water getting in your house, which is going to avoid mold, which is going to avoid um, diminished home values and respiratory problems. So that gets them thinking, oh, maybe it's worth spending a little more money for these details because this is important to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's, I mean, getting everything out up front too, because it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, bidding jobs too, when somebody comes, I mean, I have a meeting after this, to be honest with you. And I know that the people are bidding to other builders. So, and just talking to you now too, I mean, being upfront with them and saying, you know, if you're looking for the cheapest price, well, you know, it's probably not going to be me you know, more than likely, but if you're looking for a quality product, a long-term relationship, you know, we're family owned operator, we've been down where we are for a long time and we're not going anywhere, then, you know, we're the one right ones to go with. So it's just, you know, it's putting everything out there and, and kind of, you know, talk, showing the expectations, let's put it that way, you know, and telling them up front what to expect. That's, that's huge right there. That's a great answer too. Yeah. And like one question would be, are you looking for the the lowest first price or the best finished price? Mm -hmm. Because those two don't necessarily correlate. Here's what somebody could do. They could give you a number and they could come back and tell you, we're going to do this cost plus, here's what I think it is, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, oh, well, you picked um, hardwood flooring that's four bucks a square foot. And which is maybe that's the right price, but we included 25 cents a square foot. Yeah. Well, nobody does hardwood flooring for 25 cents, but you don't know that because once they sign the contract with that shady builder, then they have all the leverage at that mm-hmm. point. And that's what people need to understand. There needs to be trust, mm-hmm. really, is what it comes down to. Business, I heard this recently the business moves at the speed of trust. So build trust with your client, not necessarily take shots at the other guys, but show them, Hey, we're going to lead you through this process. Like you said, we've been around a long time. We're not going anywhere. Here are the last eight people we built houses for. I recommend you call them, watch this video of their testimonial. Um, A lot of it comes to a lot of this building value happens before they even talk to you. Mm Mm-hmm. 50, 60, 70% of the buying decision happens nowadays before you even hear from this person. So that's your social media presence, your website, your reputation, your Google reviews, your Facebook reviews, all of this stuff where you can build that trust. And ideally where you want to be is by the time somebody calls you, they've seen your videos, they know you, they've seen pictures of you at the soccer field with your kids and your dog and they know you've got a stupid chihuahua at home like i do and they feel like they know you they like you and they trust you and you're their guy and they're ready to go yeah it's a trust just like you said i mean it's building that trust being up front too yeah that's that's big i mean 
in brushing off of what you just said too, with with going through, and I've I've done this with people so many times. I mean, I've seen appliance allowances for you know, $10,000 for appliances. Now, if you're in the high end range on appliances, especially in a big custom home, like let's use a $2 million home, for example, $10,000 is a stove and a fridge, you know? So, it, it, and it's just, but a lot of people don't know, they don't think about this. They just look at the bottom line mm-hmm. and not whatever, everything else they're getting. And I mean, we've won jobs, like our company has, we've won jobs just because we were so detailed and you know and list it out literally room by room everything people are going to get but then i've also been so detailed and lost jobs to the less detailed guy because the guy couldn't get past the number and he was a number analytics guy he's just well if i had this and this and this they're close to you and his wife even said to me your quality is better you know his wife even said that to my family then what are you what are you doing you know so it's 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 crazy and and a lot of it what you just said though putting as much out front and out there as you possibly can is going to gain more trust you know and not and that's that's the bottom line i i big time agree with you on that one yeah it's it's not about um like selling and estimating are two completely different activities Mm -hmm. and this is a misconception among a lot of builders they think well, my job is to give them a price. Well, anybody can give them a price. Your job is to create massive value in their mm-hmm. minds and get them to trust you and show them that you're going to lead them through potentially the biggest financial transaction they've ever done in their life and they ever will do. The thing that could cause people could cause them to get divorced, right? I mean, there are people, there are projects that go bad enough where people get divorced or they go through financial ruin and that's scary. Mm -hmm. So they need to trust you. And that's not just a number. So Mm -hmm. that's all of the stuff you do, the experience you provide them with from the very first time they, they talk to you all the way through and you want to build a lot of value before you give them a price. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the price. You want to build a lot of value. So I, I talk to people, I have this graph that I show them that there's um, price pressure versus perceived value. So when you get a lot of price pressure, that means there's low perceived value. That's you go to the the lumber yard and you buy a five pound box of three inch screws. It's all about price, right? Mm. But when Todd goes to the emergency room because he shot a nail through his thumb, he's not negotiating on price at that point, right? Mm-hmm. High perceived value, low price pressure. So if you want less price pressure, your job is to create more and more value in their mind. And mm-hmm. value is the certainty that you're going to take care of them. So mm-hmm. that's your job. It's not just to give them a price, but also create that certainty, build that trust so that they know, like, Bill's going to take care of me. Bill's my guy. Mm-hmm. And that's it. We're going to work it out. But Bill's my guy. And the thought of working with somebody else other than Bill, eh, I don't know. I, I don't feel good about that. Mm-hmm. And it really comes down to feelings. This is another thing that most people miss when it comes to selling is you're selling based on emotion. People are buying based on emotion. So they got to feel it. And that's really, really important. 
Yeah, that's that's great right there. Because, I mean, you, you do presenting to them in a way that they are going to feel good because it is a, it's a bit it, it's all about feeling and especially in this industry, too, because it's such a big investment. I can't repeat that enough that, you know, so many things, if you choose the wrong builder it can go wrong, you know, throughout the process, a lot of headaches. And if you want to avoid headaches, too you know, go just, it shouldn't be about that bottom line number. I mean, obviously people are going to look at a number. They always are. If a builder's $2 million over the rest of the other builders, there's, there's a question mark right there. But if it comes to 50,000 apart, you know, there's a reason. And I always tell people too, I go, and I, this just recently happened to me. There's another builder that's 50,000 apart. I know why I'm not going to rip apart that other builder, but I'm just, I, I constantly say, do your research on it. Look exactly what you're getting. If you want apples to apples, I'm willing to look at and go apples to apples. I guarantee I can compete. But not a lot of people do that. And what's behind the walls matters too. You know, if they're cheapening up the insulation or they're doing something different, they're lowering the sear on the AC units. Or there's just so many things that builders can do to skimp that people don't realize too that it's just, and that's why I do what I'm doing, trying to get it out there as much as possible. Yeah. And, and education. So you're, mm -hmm. what you're doing is, is huge. And every builder, every contractor can do the same thing to some degree. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend is identify like, what are the, the biggest questions, the most commonly asked questions people have. So think about this. You go to a website, and you have a question, typically there's a frequently asked question section or page, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason they do that is because, well, two reasons. One, they don't want you emailing. They don't want to have to respond to the same question over and over and over and over and over. And they also want to differentiate themselves from the competition in those questions. So my advice is, hey, pick up your phone um, and video yourself, or you can do, do this somehow, but somehow educate your customer on some of the biggest misconceptions, some of the most frequently asked questions that they have, and then put it on your Facebook page or put it on your website. And then when somebody says, hey, we want a price, you say, I'll tell you what, um, here's what I want you to do. I'd like you to watch these videos and you're gonna answer questions. You're gonna indoctrinate them. You're going to differentiate, your, differentiate yourself from the other comp competition because maybe they're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And you're going to show them, hey, this is how we handle this. This is how we're going to do this. This is our process. And instead of dealing with the objection after you've presented the price, what if you preempt that objection and you use that to your benefit to differentiate yourself from the competitors, right? So a lot of this is let's move it from an objection, dealing with an objection after you put the price out there to let's put it up to the front end mm -hmm. and educate and use it to your advantage. Yeah, that's great right there too. So just to keep moving along here too, under the next topic here, managing a lot of employees can be tough. You've actually personally done it. You grew a company and the amount of employees they had. Uh, you want to ensure, you know, they are all on the same page, deliver the same quality product that you have, you know, and, and follow your reputation as well. How can a builder maintain the same standard and service, you know, to the customer as they grow and gain employees? 
So that's a big, it's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a lot of time teaching on leadership, but I would say there are really two things. W- one, one uh, key belief change um, that I learned from uh, Herb Kelleher, who was the co-founder of Southwest Airlines. He just passed away earlier this year, but he said, treat your employees like customers. And if you think about it, some people are like customers. Customers are people who pay me money. Well, let's, let's define what a customer is. I would say a customer is somebody who makes some exchange of value with you for a result with an experience, right? So your external customer, somebody's going to buy a house from you. They're going to give you money. That's the value in return for a result house with an experience, how they feel about it and how everything goes. Then you have internal customers, people who are making an exchange of value with you. They're giving their time, their energy, their creativity. In some cases, they're putting their lives on the line, bringing their, all of everything they've got, their, their hands, their, their brain power, um, everything. And they are making an exchange of value with you for a result, a paycheck, benefits, security, with an experience, how they're treated, how they feel. So when you think about that, the, I ask people, who is making a bigger Who's contributing more value to you? Who's putting more on the line, your internal customers or your external customers? And your internal customers or your employees, they're the ones that are giving you the most value. So when you approach your organization like that, it's a whole different game, right? Then you're like, these people are, my people are putting it all on the line for Mm -hmm. me. And it's my job to support them. So it's, that puts you in a position to, take a servant leadership approach where like my, my philosophy is it's my job to serve the people that, that I manage. If you want to call it that I support Mm -hmm. them, I serve them. It's my job to make them successful and it's their job to make their team successful. And that's really the, the pivotal mindset change. And when your people feel that way, they feel trusted, empowered, uh, appreciated and they'll run through walls for you. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really where it starts. And then there's a whole lot of other leadership stuff on how that actually walks out. But that's really where it starts is how do you think about the people on your team? And if you think about them that way, that's going to, they're going to feel it. And mm-hmm. I know I've been in organizations where I was just a number. Yeah. And I felt that too. Yeah, no, that yeah, that's that's big time because it's it's creating that that company culture, but uh, you know, revolving your company around your your values too, but also appreciating your employees for who they are and what they do. They do good work. You got to appreciate them. That that's that's the key thing right there too. Because I mean, if you are just a number as an employee, you're not going to be there long, and you're just going to cycle through them and through them and through, and it's just going to be a repetitive process, which your company probably more than likely won't grow if you can't maintain consistent employees. You yeah. know, hands and down. Think about these companies that have, well, I, if you look at the, this, there's this, people call it this, the skilled labor shortage. We're dealing with kind of a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. In, in construction. 
And a lot of the problem is our turnover rate is ridiculously high. So I looked at the statistics from the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, 2015, 16, 17. And like the separation rate was like 60, I want to say over 60%, maybe 65% in construction. So that meant that's voluntary, involuntary separations, people getting fired, people quitting, people getting laid off, whatever. That is way worse than most other industries. Mm-hmm. It's worse than manufacturing. It's, there may, there's only one or two other industries that are worse than, than construction. So that means that six, on average, six out of 10 people that start a job in construction in 2020 are going to quit, are going to get fired, going to get laid off by the end of 2020. That's great, yeah. So the, the people are there. There are like 7 million people in the construction industry right now. So what if we just reduced that separation rate? What if we could get people to stick around, right? What if we were just average? Like the average separation rate is 40 or 50%. If we were just average, if we were doing as poorly or as well as the other industries and keeping our people around longer, we wouldn't have a skilled labor crisis. So yes, part of it is we've got to replace the aging workforce that mm-hmm. is leaving, but we're overlooking the 7 million people who are climbing up and down ladders and um, nailing shingles and framing and everything that construction workers do right now. We're overlooking them. The biggest part of the solution to the skilled labor crisis, in my opinion, are the people that are already in the industry. We got to take better care of them. Mm-hmm. Think about what happens if we could get productivity up, right? Our productivity's crap. According to McKinsey reports, it's like 50 to 60%. Hasn't gotten any better in 50 years. What if we could reduce our retention rate or reduce our turnover, right? Mm-hmm. What if we could increase productivity a little bit? Then we don't need more people. So that's why I, I call it kind of a skilled labor delusion. We're a little mm-hmm. delusional to think we just need to hire more people because what we really need to do is take better care of the people we have and lead them better and help them be more productive. Mm, hire the right people and maintain the right people too. That's for sure. Definitely. So I want to, let's, let's talk some marketing uh, strategies. What, what are some of the best construction marketing strategies in your, your opinion? Best marketing strategies, um, build trust. If I had to say it in two words, build trust. So understand that people do business with service providers and builders that they know, they like, and they trust. Also know that people are making 50 or 60 or 70% of their buying decision before you even find out about it. So your marketing should be, I want them to know me, I want them to like me, and I want them to trust me. And if you do that right, by the time you actually talk to them, they already know you, hopefully they like you, and ideally they already trust you. So that's like high level. That's what I would want to do. And then um, that that really sets the tone for the marketing. No, yeah, I agree with that too. I highly agree with that. But the problem is with the marketing, you know, we have so many platforms and channels out there. I mean, I'm doing it, you're doing it, obviously, but not a lot of builders 
are doing, you know, especially with podcasting or even just being on social media in general. And unfortunately, in my opinion, I think a lot of, you know, things are going to change and those people that aren't implementing those, those web strategies or social media strategies are kind of going to be weeded out a little bit and left in the dust because I mean people like you and me that are in front of people constantly promoting our product doing what we're doing giving the value that we give you know who are they going to go to you know we're in front of everybody they're seeing us they're meeting us you know meeting meeting us through a screen basically you know but still it's it's just it's a huge thing too yeah well, I interviewed a guy named uh, Dave Cooper from Connecticut Valley Homes, and he and his company build high-end custom modular homes, and they build um, on islands. So okay. these are like 8,000 square foot modular homes on islands. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool stuff. And they do amazing work. But what's interesting about Dave is he started just like pulling his phone out on job sites and recording himself walking around job sites. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen it over and over and over on LinkedIn, Facebook. And if you're interested, you should just go check him out. Dave Cooper, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, probably Instagram too. But his marketing strategy is he goes out to a job site, he pulls out the phone and he walks around for a couple of minutes and he points at, Hey, this is, Here's what's going on. Look at this big ass crane sitting in the street. Here's why we do this. Here, here are things we do to make sure that the, the street is blocked off properly and traffic control and safety. And he's building value mm-hmm. while he's educating the client. Like, Hey, this is why we spend a lot of time planning the crane placement. We want to make sure we know where the utilities are. And then he walks in to the, the box that just got set and says something like we set this box 30 minutes ago. This is what it looks like. And he, pans around the room and shows appliances, doors are laid on the floor, like the whole process. So he, if, if you wanted to see what a modular build looks like in real life, cool, you could man. just go to his Facebook page and go back to the beginning, the first video of that project and just walk through it. And you know mm-hmm. what? By the time you watched all of those videos, you would know Dave. You would probably like Dave or you wouldn't like him, one or the other but you'd be clear on whether you like him or not. And you would be pretty well educated on the process. And because Dave's educating you, you would trust Dave and mm-hmm. you would know, Hey, if Dave's telling me what to watch out for, then he, he seems to have my best interest in mind. So my advice for people is pull your phone out. The next time you go to a job site, think about something interesting that's going on there and then record a quick video talking about why you do that and why it's important to the customer. Super simple, doesn't take production, doesn't take prep. You don't even have to have a special microphone, record the video, upload it to Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever. But if you want to, if you're marketing to homeowners, then Facebook and LinkedIn or, or Facebook and Instagram are probably the way to go. Put them on your website, but that's a super simple super low budget, like no budget way to start marketing, to get people to know you, to like you and to trust you. 
Well, most people like that raw footage anyway. I mean, the the numbers on raw footage and everything too are are well up there. I'm I'm big on that too. Just going on Instagram story, it's big, you know, and just just walking through a house and showcase. I do it every month with a couple of spec homes we have being built right now that we're selling. I do it once a month and update on each where I walk through and update everybody on what's going on, where we're at, the processes, all the roofs on, check out the roof. I got a drone. I fly the drone over it. You know, I, 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 I'm funny in it too, to keep the humor alive. It's just, and I have fun with it and I've been doing it for a while and a lot of people see it. I mean, I get it all the time. Hey, I saw your video, you know, and that was great. And, you know, I love watching what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. I do it with lots that I'm empty lots that I'm selling, you know, stuff like that with, even with real estate. It's that easy with reels on the real estate end. All people, you, it's just literally walking around with your phone in your face and talking about something. People love it. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer. People just got to get past the, you know, being scared to hear themselves or see themselves part. And once you do and not care, it's like sky's the limit. You're, you're a couple of thoughts. One, you're not going to, I don't like to hear myself talk. Yeah. I don't listen to my podcast. I don't like, I don't like it. Nobody likes the sound of their own voice no. for whatever reason. Um, the first few times you do it, it's going to suck. It's going to be awkward, but just record a few and get over it. Whether you do those first three now, or you do those first three that are going to suck in a year from now, they're going to suck. So mm-hmm. get used to it. Don't even upload them. Don't post them, whatever, but just start doing it. I understand nobody's comfortable in front of the camera, you'll get comfortable. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes the way they sound. So don't, don't listen to it. It's not for you. It's for other people, right? Yeah, I was, I was joking about this with a guy I interviewed too. I mean, going back, if you listen to your very first podcast, you, I don't even want to listen to it. Uh, yeah, uh, it's just, you know, very geez. stagnant question, 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 no <laughs> back and forth like me and you are talking right now. And I'm just like, you know, and, and yeah. how far I've come doing this and getting so used to, you know, doing because the more you do it, like you just said, the better you're going to get at it. And same with video. I mean, I'm doing all kinds of video now. I remember when I first started doing video, it took me 10 takes because I'm like, oh, that's not good. That's not good. Now it's one yeah. and I'm done. You know, I'm like, oh, that's yeah. fine. Let's roll it. Let's move to the next spot. Right. You know, so consistency yeah. is I key. Was the, I was the same way. I, I used to record the video on my phone then I would upload it somewhere, put it on my computer. Then I would edit it to clean it up. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I looked yeah. at, you know, I had to tell, I even had a teleprompter at one point, <laughs> like screw that. I was spending an entire day to get a video out. So now if I want to crank out a 10 minute video, it takes me 10 minutes, uh-huh. maybe a yeah. few minutes of prep, a couple of scribble down some thoughts and then make sure you look at the, the camera on the phone yeah. and, uh, Boom, you're, you're done. So people, people crave authenticity, right? So I, here's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I, I, I look on social media and I, I see all of these kind of off-the-shelf social media images. And there are companies out there who they'll take your money and they'll crank out generic social media posts for you. But they're just that. And they feel generic because oh, yeah. they are and people can tell like, Oh, this is, this is canned. Um, but if you're scrolling through your feed and you see somebody, um, somebody's face like walking around a job site, 
that gets my attention. I want to mm. see what's going on. It's like I was a little kid, um, you know, watching this old house with Tom Silva and those guys. I loved that stuff when I was younger. And um, people love authenticity. They like unscripted and they want to see you. Mm. So don't hide behind the camera. Don't just take pictures of the work. Understand a big part of the decision is not a big part of the decision is the result, right? So the picture of the house, the details, that's great. But anybody, there, there are lots of people who can build a house and they want to know who you are. They want to see you. They want to hear your voice. They want to hear how you think. They want to get to know you. And so get over it. Get over that reluctance to be in front of the camera. And I'm telling you, it, it'll, it'll pay off if you do it with some consistency. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a prime example of that going, going off of that a little bit more is like with real estate stuff, you see the typical real estate, realtor post the sold, you know, it's just a picture of the house, this and that. Why not go a little bit more above and beyond on that and actually walk through the house and be like, hey, this is my closing. You know, I sold this and this, this and this, and this is how I did it. I also went above and beyond, uh, you know, on, on the inspection stuff. I did this, this and this for the customer check this place out and then maybe sit down with the customer and have them do a testimonial with you too. I mean, it's just Absolutely. stuff like that, that I would rather see, you know, or a funny video, you know, like uh, I remember I saw something where somebody had a listing and they did the whole pictures, every picture in a dinosaur suit, you know? So, and it, it, and it was one of the most viewed things on Zillow. So that just tell our properties on Zillow because it was trending and so on. So, I mean, there's just a little stupid, funny things that you can do or just what you said, consistency, walking through and showing people what's going on with a job site so they can see people watch it all the time. They want to see it. Yeah. Oh. I, I've got a, a, a dry, um, slightly inappropriate sense of humor. So that stuff's going to come out and, mm -hmm. Listen, if somebody has a problem with that, they know they'll tune out. <laughs> yeah, then uh, they're—I don't even—they probably shouldn't even talk to me because yeah. they're going to get real tired of that over the course of a project. So, yeah, it's um, some of the the stuff that I've posted. I've done some experiments on social media, and I found people want to be entertained, mm -hmm. even if it's on LinkedIn, which is primarily business oriented. Some of the stuff that I've posted that gets the most likes has absolutely no value it's just funny mm -hmm. people like funny stuff and like the the dinosaur suit or um you know whatever whatever it takes people want to be entertained mm -hmm. whatever they're looking at especially like facebook um people want to be entertained so give them what they want remember it, it this this kind of goes back there's this common theme in our conversation like be valuable to them they want they want to be entertained entertain them. You can stay up on your high horse, I guess, if you want to and say, I'm a prestigious builder. You know, I'm not going to uh, demean myself. And I have a, a certain level of excellence that I operate at. If you're like Ricky Bobby, you're like, I piss excellence. You know, if that's you, <laughs> then fine, you know, but people aren't going to, no, they're, they're, they're not going to get to know you and like you and trust you. Yeah. Be yourself, be funny, be just, be you long story right. short and just film it film your day film the let you know people want to see yeah. it people want to see the 
the background. They want to see what's going on in the trenches and they want to, you know, so plain and simple. So just to keep moving here, you know, what about, let's say, let's go into the customer aspect. So uh, what should a builder do to guide customers throughout the process to avoid unwanted surprises? What would you recommend? A um, couple of things. One is, it's like you said, it's about guiding the customer. They're looking for you to lead them through this process. So from the early phases, from the time they contact you, think of it as your job to lead them through the process. Like, mm-hmm. here's what happens next. Um, don't just call them and say, hey, just following up. You can call them and say, hey, I heard you say you want to be in by Christmas of next year. That means that in order to do that, we need to do this and this and this. We can take care of that. All we need for you to do is boom. So lead them through the process. One of the the biggest, two of the biggest headaches that I hear um, from the builders that I work with would be like last minute selections. People, it sort of sets off this domino effect of chaos when a customer gets called Let's say you get a call from your countertop guy who says, hey, my granite is eight weeks out. I need a selection tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or if it, here it is, we're recording this on Friday. And he says, I need to know it now or you're going to miss, you're going to lose two weeks. So you call the customer. The customer has this kind of gun to the head moment where they have to scramble around and pick something and they go into a panic. Um, all of that can be avoided by scheduling the selections. So my advice, and I did this on the commercial side, I wish I had done it back when I was doing residential, I would figure out what are all the key decisions that my customer needs to make? Paint colors, light fixtures, like for example, don't wait until the drywall's up to pick your light fixtures, right? Mm -hmm. Because you gotta coordinate all that stuff. So think about when do I need to, when do I need to pick the light fixtures? Well, probably before they rough in maybe even before they frame. So when do I need to pick the fireplace? When do I need to pick the windows? And then put those things into your schedule and then tell them, tell your client, here is everything you need to do. And here's when you need to make this selection by. Don't tell them, don't give them a a binder full of fill in the blank work and then say, do this as quick as you can because they're just overwhelmed. But if you can give them a schedule that says, right, this is the order we need this stuff in and here are your deadlines for each thing that's leading them through the process mm-hmm. and that keeps them busy also so that's number one number two is communicate with them proactively through the project so a lot of people tell me like, and i spend all of my time answering texts and phone calls and emails and snapchats and facebook messages from my clients well it's because they're looking for information and you can avoid all that stuff by proactively by doing a couple of things. One, setting expectations early on that you are not a call center, right? And number two, you tell them what they need to know. So if people are constantly asking you, hey, what's going on next week? What happened this week? What do I got to do? Then put together a weekly report or have a weekly meeting with them and say, here's what happened last week. Here's what's happening next week. Maybe it's a two week look ahead. And then here's what's on your to-do list. And then when they call you and ask questions, you train them to say, I'll answer that in our meeting. I'll answer that in the weekly update. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Matt, there was a guy in Canada that I shared that strategy with, and he said he got 40% of his time back just by batching communication is what I call it. So weekly updates and then scheduling those selections with your clients up front, letting them know what the expectations are, that just that reduces so much of the chaos. Yeah, I mean, it's like we talked about too, setting expectations is huge, like doing it up front and everything. But I mean, there's other systems you can implement as a contractor too that will help keep the customer informed. You know, there's like Builder Trend or I think Pro cure and stuff like that software platforms that you know help streamline the process throughout every for everybody but keeps the customer in tune so they're not constantly emailing and calling and saying well where's where are we at in this pro nobody's at the job site today how come you know right. stuff like that and just it's getting ahead of them too and being ahead of them within the process yeah, because here's what i found in a vacuum of information, when, when they don't have any information, are they going to assume the worst or the best case? Mm -hmm. It's usually the worst. They're like, they, they told me the drywall guy is going to be here today. It's 8.15. He's not here yet. Yeah. Damn. They've gone out of business. They've taken my money. They're in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And like immediately, they've gone to worst case scenario. And then you start getting calls and texts. And, and then your whole morning is shot. And then the drywall guy shows up at 9.30. And there's not a problem. But mm -hmm. if you had told them, drywall guy's going to show up on this date, or, or maybe you didn't tell them a specific date when they're going to show up. You just told them, here's what's coming up over the next five days. We're going to start and finish drywall. And you don't, you don't want to give them too much information that they can use against you. You don't want to be so detailed that they kind of micromanage. But you want to get out in front and tell them, here's what's coming. Here's what's really important. Here are the key milestones we're shooting at right now. This is the most important stuff. And here's what you really need to be focused on. You got to make your selections. You're behind the eight ball and this kind of stuff. But you know, if, if somebody's asking you for question for information all the time, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're a difficult client. It could be a symptom that you're just not communicating enough. And there are easy ways to do that on your terms. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what about what do you think about like the the as far as like customer service in general, you know, what should builders focus on most as far as the customer and the customer service aspect of things. And let's talk about also the long term. So after the build, obviously every builder has warranty, but even after the warranty too, I like to bring this up because we're so big on, I, I got a guy now that's focusing on our customer service, even after the warranty, because my whole mission with us is, Kind of we i want to be that gatekeeper i've spoke about this before that whoever we built a house for they're going to call us and if they need a plumber if they need a painter if they need somebody because it's going to keep us at top of mind so as far as long-term strategies with customers too what what do you recommend well what i what i tell people is um if you finish a project a day late or a week late, people might be upset about that at the time, but they're going to forget about that. Mm -hmm. What they don't forget about is when they don't forget about how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. So again, this goes back to feelings. Yeah. So my, my focus on customer service would be communication. Make sure you communicate with them throughout the process and really nail, nail the move in. 
Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a few custom home builders and asked them, All right, what percentage of your problems happen at the end of a project? And they said 95% of our problems happen at move-in where missed expectations or timing is not right or some little detail. So in, in projects, there are, there are two areas that I really focus on. I'm big on systems. And so I, I focus on the handoff from sales or pre-construction to the field. That's where a lot of things fall through the cracks. So, and I would, I would say actually this goes for customer service as well, because a lot of customers get really frustrated. They have this great experience with the salesperson. They come into the showroom, they're picking out selections, they're getting mimosas and um, pedicures and everybody's, you know, treating them like royalty. And then they sign a contract and suddenly they're dealing with this grisly old um, superintendent who has half their teeth, who cusses like a sailor. That's a different experience. They mm-hmm. kind of feel like they got the bait switched. So nail the handoff, make sure that whatever your customer, whatever expectations are developed at the beginning during the sales process, get handed off to the field and using systems like co-construct or builder trend are key for that. Just make sure when that baton gets passed, that things don't get dropped. Mm-hmm. That's where expectations well, expectations get missed and there's that selective memory loss like, hey, um, you didn't tell me that I was going to have to buy two dryers. Um, so I want you to give me a free dryer. And mm-hmm. if you have a good system in place where you can go back and look at those conversations and show them the sketches that they signed off on that show two dryers, then you can he who has the best documentation wins, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so nail the handoff and then nail it and move in. Make sure the expectations are handled. Make sure somebody's there to handle that last 2% because the skill set necessary to do the last 2% of a house is very different than the skill set necessary to get it out of the ground mm-hmm. and do the first 75%, right? So, if you're going to focus on two parts of the, the process, the vast majority of your problems probably come from the handoff and then at move in. And if you can nail, maybe you, maybe they won't remember much about the handoff, but they'll, the only thing they'll remember is at move in if it's a chaos. And then they'll tell anybody that asks them if the last 2% is bad, then that's all that they're going to remember. So that, that's what I would say. Yeah, I'm I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you because because the punch out part of it too before the handoff is so so big too, you know. Like today, after after we're done with this, I'm gonna go help my brother. Uh, we we got a house we're closing on in December, but he wants me to help him with the punch outs and the finals, just because we, I, I'm very meticulous. I drive our painters nuts. I'll put it that way, you know, because I see little things that a lot of people don't. But that's that delivery you know when we deliver the product we want everything to be spotless and perfect and unfortunately and that's what people remember is when they're closing that's what the biggest memory they have is when they get possession of the house because that's when they're the happiest you know the process is over you want to have you know obviously a good process everything's you know in order and so on and fine-tuned but towards the end like you said 
that's the biggest impact phase right there. And if it's not done right and there's stuff all over the walls and there's, you know, marks and the trim's not right or, you know, the appliances aren't working or they're not even, you know, it's, that's what they're going to remember the most and that's what they're going to tell their friends about. So like from a builder standpoint, 99.5%, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really good. But to a homeowner who just, wrote a check or took on a million dollars in debt, that's not good enough. Yeah. And it's gotta be either the expectations have to be set or a lot of it comes down to expectations. I, I've seen a lot of cases where they really should push the closing and the move in off a week. Yeah. Just that would be the best thing to do, but they don't because they're like, well, I think I could be the hero. I think I can bring this thing home. I don't want to we'll do the best the we client. can. Yeah. Yeah, like, like, well, you're going to really frustrate your client a lot more by telling them, mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to be ready. And then they move in and they're like, well, my stove's not hooked up and um, the, the, the hot water's not working and you know, it's 99.5% done, which is good for you, but not good for them. So, you know, homeowners, just set expectations. Don't be afraid to tell them, hey, we need a little more time. We want to make sure we get this thing right for you. But yeah, nail absolutely nail the move in make sure it's perfect because that mistake at that phase will wipe away every attaboy and every heroic deed you did um before that mm -hmm. exactly i mean it's been some great information right here i i want to get into you personally a little bit more as we close out here i mean you've built an amazing platform that you know you continue to grow every day your podcast is blown up uh you, it's a lot of hard work that you're putting into what you're doing what lessons have you learned throughout your journey that you should all that we should all apply to our own business or our own lives to help us grow if i had to pick one i would say that the problem your problem is not out there Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that they blame the competition, subcontractors, general contractors, customers, the economy, Donald Trump, um, Hillary Clinton. They, they blame everybody else and they think the problem's out there. But what I found is that I was and continue to be my biggest problem. So my mindset the way that I process information, the way I deal with things um, is, is huge. So a few years ago, I figured this out and I work really hard every day on my mindset. Mm -hmm. So um, take ownership of your mindset because when you change, when you can control your, your mindset, then you can control your emotions, then you can control your behaviors, you can control the way you think. And when you can do that stuff, when you can control your behavior, your emotions, and what you think about, you, you're kind of unstoppable mm. and nothing will get to you. So that's what, that's some of the, the most valuable work I do with, with folks. And actually where I start people off is mindset. So let's figure out how you're shooting yourself in the foot, how you're holding yourself back and really start looking, looking at your biggest enemy, which is the guy in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And mindset is because if you have a good mindset and you go into life with a good because I'm personally, you know, I've been working on my my personal mindset, too. I mean, 
you know, you when you get past the blame game and, you know, that it's, all right, this this contractor must have done this. That's why he got the cut. So we're not meant to work for everybody, with everybody. We're not going to get everybody, even as a builder, you want to. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you want all the business as possible. That's just how we are. But you, when you learn that, okay, maybe we're not meant to work with this person, you know, and you change that mindset too, opportunity comes again. I mean, it'll come knocking on your door again before you know it. And then next opportunity comes and then you maybe you are and you click with that other customer, that person better than the other guy that went with the other builder. So it's just realizing that, that it's not the end of the world, that the more opportunities are going to come and present themselves to you. That's where, you know, things really change as far as the mindset perspective too. Yeah. And, and to put a little more uh, uh, of a finer point on, on mindset, one of the most, I was reading a book called um, The Obstacle is the Way. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good book by Ryan Holiday. And there was one phrase that I read and I looked up and I was like, this changes everything. And the concept is that there are no bad things that happen to us. There, there's, there's no such thing as a good thing. There's not a bad thing. There are things that happen. And then we tell ourselves a story about whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. Right. So this, uh, you know, somebody calls this afternoon and says, you know what, we're going to go with the other guy. Well, you can tell yourself a good story or a bad story. And a lot of us tend to tell ourselves a bad story when that happens and say, ah, man, I suck. I'm in the wrong lot of business. Construction sucks. They suck. I suck. I'm stupid. What am I even doing? And get into this downward spiral um, by telling ourselves bad stories. Or we could say, you know what? Um, I get to control the narrative here. That's okay. Um, There are other deals coming along. I gave them my best price. I did the best I could. And... Mm -hmm. I'm not going to work with everybody and there are more opportunities out there. Um, Sometimes the best business development is when somebody goes and works with my competition. I've had that happen Mm -hmm. where like, yeah, this is not a one and done kind of a situation. So the, the revelation that we control the narrative, you get to determine if something is good or bad based on the story you tell yourself. When you do that and you're like, I don't care what happens to me, I can control my, the narrative I tell myself. And that narrative determines my feelings and my feelings determine my actions. So when I can control the narrative, I can, I can become unstoppable at that point. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Because I mean, cause we, cause obviously, like we said, us, us being in business too, you know, you don't get that customer, you spend the time that you did, you know, and we can't get that time back. That's what's clicking in your head. Like, oh, I just wasted all this time. You know, I spent all this time on, you know, writing out feature sheets and pricing and I took them to different houses and now they're just like that going with somebody else. That's what used to beat me up about it. But then when I switched that and I said, okay, you know, maybe I wasn't meant to work with that person. You know, I held to my price. I held to the value that we were going to deliver. I didn't undercut myself because they asked me, oh, well, this builder's at this cost. Why can't you be at that cost? 
you know, and, and do cheaper materials because we have that reputation for doing above and beyond, you know, cause that's, that's the problem though, too. A lot of the times people will undercut themselves to get the job because the customer will come back to them and say, well, he's at, you know, this much a square foot. Why can't you get there? And then they'll undercut themselves and lower the quality of their product when they're known for a higher quality, you know, house and they don't stick to their guns. You know, that's, that's when they get into something that, all right, now you're, now you're pulling your business backwards instead of maintaining that reputation, that high level of build that you had. And that's yep. what I've learned. I'm not willing to do. I mean, that's our reputation. And I always tell people, you know, we're not going to be the cheapest. We're not the most expensive, but we may be right in the middle and we're going to build you a heck of a product. We're going to give you the best experience that we possibly can. And then we're going to maintain it throughout the time you're in the home because it's one of our houses that we built and you become part of that Ryman family, you know? So that's what's, what it's all about too, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. So last question I like to ask everybody, uh, what exactly do people need to look for when hiring a business coach and why should they choose Todd DeWalt as their go-to guy? Wow. Um, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. Um, what should somebody look for in a coach? Um, well, I'll tell you what, I've talked to a few other people, uh, a few builders, contractors who uh, have ended up working with me and they've, they've told me about some experiences they've had with other coaches. Um, some coaches say, well, you know, I, I work with people from all different parts of, of all different industries and construction's kind of like everything else mm -hmm. eh, to some degree, maybe their constructions like a lot of other industries, but there's certainly a lot of nuance. So, um, you know, having been in business for 20 years, having owned a business, a construction business, having grown a business, having made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I think there's personally a lot of value in working with somebody who's in the business, who has owned a business. Um, I've also talked to folks who have uh, interviewed other coaches and like the coach is telling them what to do. Like, well, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. And my advice would be shy away from people like that because somebody who's telling you what to do, like on after just a few minutes of talking to you, mm -hmm. they don't know. They don't know you. They don't know your situation. They're actually not doing you a favor. What I've found like my style is I'm going to ask lots of questions. I'm going to, my job is to help you say what you need to do. So most of the people I work with, they're smart, they're creative. They've obviously had some measure of success, but they're really busy and they don't have people to talk to. They don't have somebody to hold them accountable. They don't need somebody to tell them what to do all the time. They need somebody to help them like lead them to a point where they hear themselves say, all right, this is the most important thing. This is what I need to do. This is why I need to do it. And this is what I'm going to do. And so my job as a coach is really to help facilitate that conversation, provide some guidance along the way, ask questions, poke holes, and then provide accountability. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my advice is and find somebody whose style matches yours. If, if you want to, if you want to drill instructor style and you want somebody to yell at you, then make sure that that, 
person has that style. Like I can't, I couldn't fake that. That's, that's not my style. Some people may need that. Um, there are some people out there who are, uh, they're just, they're coaches who are cheerleaders and they'll say, so how's this going? And the, the business owner will say, well, this is what I'm doing. And the coach will say, that's good. Keep that up. They're like, why, why am I, why am I doing this? You're not really adding any value. So um, now why should they work with me? I don't know. That's, that's something, that's a decision that they'll have to arrive at on their own. And probably the best way they can figure that out is to listen to the podcast and listen to my podcast. There are to date 142 episodes out there. You may not like me. You may think this guy's, this guy's stuff is out there. Um, maybe you will, but uh, yeah, get, get to know me, listen to how I interact with other business owners on the podcast, listen to some of the stuff that I teach, some of my content on the podcast, um, go sign up for some of my videos, go to my website and get to know me. If you like me, if you don't like me, at least, uh, at least you'll know before we, before we start working together. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. That's great. Todd, I appreciate this. This has been great. A lot of great information. Uh, last thing too, where can people connect with you? Yeah. Um, so my website is constructionleadingedge.com. That's kind of home base for everything. If you want some resources, um, there's a resource tab on my website. If you want to check out the podcast, there's a tab there. You can find links to all the big podcast players. Um, if, you, if you're a business owner and you're like, you know what, I think I, I could use some help. Uh, I'd like to, to talk about some of the roadblocks and maybe get some of the stuff that's bouncing around in my head out there. Then I do free strategy sessions with business owners. So you can go to my website, click on the button that says something like schedule your free call and uh, check out the Construction Leading Edge podcast. It's, been a, it's out there on just about every podcast player, imaginal, imaginable, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, etc. Um, but yeah, check it out. That, that's so that, that's two things: the website constructionleadingedge.com and uh, the podcast Construction Leading Edge podcast. And I've listened to your podcast and I would highly recommend it, especially somebody that's in the industry because there's a lot of great information. I mean, we brushed on quite a, quite a bit of it, but there's a ton more. I mean, you can walk somebody basically through running a construction company, listening to your podcast too, or even help a customer that needs to learn about, you know, construction in general too. So it's, it's, I highly recommend it too. I'm, I'm a subscriber myself. So Anyway, Todd, I really do appreciate you coming on uh, The Real Build today, and I will see you guys on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Real Build. And guys, if you would just take a little bit of your time to write a review below, I'd really appreciate it. It doesn't take long. Obviously, reviews are going to make this show be heard by more people, and that's what we need. We need to get this out there. So please, write a review, share it with your friends and family, and thank you so much for everybody that's listening, and I'll see you guys on the next episode.